Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Ann Martin, the chief investment officer for Wesleyan University, where she manages the school's $1 billion endowment. Ann's career started in the tech world and shifted to endowment management at Yale's famed investments office. She took over at Wesleyan a decade ago as one of a handful of Yale Investment alums serving other institutions. Our conversation covers Anne's path from competitive rower to the tech world and a fortuitous connection with David Swenson. We cover the transferable skills from private equity to endowment management, key lessons learned at Yale, 
experience taking on a startup at Wesleyan, application of knowledge to a smaller pool of capital, development of a team and a portfolio, perspectives on natural resources and venture capital, and Wesleyan's competitive advantage as an allocator. Please enjoy my conversation with Anne Martin. Anne, great to see you. Good to be here. I want to start with competitive sports because so many people in this industry at some point in time competed, and I know you're right there in that mix. Okay, you're right. I am guilty <laughs> as charged. What was that like back in your crew days? So I think certain people just are born with a certain energy level. Nobody told me I had to become a rower, but when I was eight years old, I joined a local swimming club and I loved it. And I was one of those kids that couldn't be happier except swimming, you know, back and forth over a black line of the pool for hours. So somehow I just always had that, that gene, I guess. And when I got to college, I actually swam my freshman year and my event was a 400 IM, which is the most painful event on the planet. And I actually did pretty well. I qualified for the division three championships. And I told the coach, I'm not going. And he said, you're not going to the national championships. And I said, to you, it's the national championships. For me, it's just a 400 IM, another painful event. So I ended up going skiing with my family instead. So I was burned out in swimming as so many swimmers get. By the time I was 18, I was just ready to call it a day. And one of my roommates on my hallway was a rower, said, you ought to come out and see the sport. And I went to Smith. We had this beautiful little pond called Paradise Pond. I met the coach. He said, go down to the pond and just do the recreational wherry rowing, a, a big, very stable boat around this tiny little pond. And I instantly fell in love with it. It was the middle of the spring. The crew was already in session. But somehow, and this could never happen today, but the coach would take me out on the Connecticut River, which is really fast and furious in the spring. And I'd be in this little single or double with him. And I learned to row that way. So I went out for crew the next year. I did my junior year abroad in Paris, but came back my senior year and rowed. And we had a new coach. She had been on the national team, Kathy Keeler. She was actually married to the Harvard coach, Harry Parker. I didn't even know rowing was an Olympic sport or a world championship sport. And she encouraged me to go to the national team testing. And I did. And I had great scores on the ERG and got invited to a development camp. And that's how I got started. How far did you take it? So let's see, that was my senior year. I instantly got the bug. I was convinced I could make the Olympic team someday. And so I left college without a job, or at least without a real job. I moved to Boston so I could train and met this terrific community of rowers, one of whom worked in consulting and said, you should go and interview at my consulting firm. That was a great fit. They hired me. And so I spent four or five years in Boston between 83 and 88, rowing, training, and working at this consulting firm in strategic development. So it was a kind of a balancing act, but it worked out great. It's not something you could do today, but it worked for me then. And I made the 88 team. So I was on the national team from 85 through 88. And so then you launched into your career. So I'd done four years of consulting or three years of consulting, which was great, but I knew I didn't want to be a consultant. I met my future husband in rowing. He was moving to the West Coast to take the Stanford freshman rowing job as a coach. And so I moved out there, worked for another consulting firm for a year, and then went to Stanford Business School. So I graduated in 91. I went right to Alex Brown, which was my first introduction to finance. Over my summer at business school, I actually worked for Microsoft. I really wanted to see what it would be like to be inside a company that did something. And let's see, it was probably all of 6,000 or 9,000 people then. And I thought it was huge. 
I just thought, I feel like a cog in the machinery here. This is a great company, but I don't want to work here. So I ended up going to this small investment bank called Alex Brown, which focused on emerging growth companies. I was in the technology practice in San Francisco. This is 1991. People who are old will remember it was actually kind of a terrible time in tech recession, especially. There wasn't a lot to do the first couple of years, but I worked with a great group. I started out in semiconductors, disk drives, moved to some software, and then a partner and I spun off to do the New Media Group, and we started this thing called New Media, and that became the basis for the internet practice there. So that started in like 94, 95 with Broderbond and Electronic Arts and quickly moved into the internet. So I was involved with the Amazon IPO, the eBay IPO. We represented Zip2, which was Elon Musk's first company that nobody knows about. We sold that to Compaq. So there was a lot of really interesting deals then. Alex Brown was sold in 99 and I left a week later. That wasn't in my plan to work for a big German bank. And from there? So I went to a private equity firm after that called Rosewood Capital. Uh, I was there for three years. But in the meantime, my husband had gotten the itch. He had been the freshman rowing coach at Stanford and then coached at a high school in, in San Francisco. And in 2000, he was invited to be one of the coaches for the Olympic team. He's also a two-time Olympian, 88 and 92. And he ended up coaching the silver medal pair in 2000 which forced us to move to the East Coast after that for one year so he could train. So I was working for this private equity firm while I was on the East Coast. It was impossible. So after that, when we moved back, he really wanted to coach at a higher level. He got the Yale rowing job, and so we moved to New Haven. And I left my private equity job, and then I met David. So that's how I got to investment management. And so through the experience you had in banking and private equity, what priors did you bring with you? when you started working at the Yale Investments Office? Yeah. So interestingly, there's a lot of stuff you have to leave behind when you enter investment management from investment banking. I mean, the first thing you have to leave behind is your transactional mindset. Because when you're in investment banking, it's all about the next deal, your fee generating, and that's how you get paid. So doing the next deal is sort of what you live for. When you get to investment management, it's sort of about doing the right deal at the right time with the right level of thoughtfulness. So you have to leave a lot of that behind. On the other hand, what you bring with you is a much deeper knowledge of the capital markets than many people in investment management. I think there's a greater understanding of how does equity formation work over the life of a company? What makes something attractive? When you're a banker, you know, you're constantly sifting through companies thinking about, well, I am underwriting this and I am putting my firm's name on this. What makes a good company? And so you bring some of that with you. And then the other thing that really helped me was because I was in emerging growth technology, there was a whole network of people that I knew from my nine years in San Francisco that were venture capitalists, growth equity investors, CEOs. And that provided a really nice database for me when underwriting new venture positions for Yale. There were people I could call who I felt would give me a very candid view of people we were trying to underwrite. So those are a couple of things that were super helpful. So when you joined Yale, you dove in on the private equity side? Originally, I came in as a consultant. And only because when we moved to the East Coast for John's job, I took about 18 months off. I had twin boys at that point. They were seven years old. And 
I was trying to get them situated in school. There was just a lot of change. We had moved to Princeton for one year while John coached his team. We moved back to San Francisco. Then we moved to New Haven. And so that was the right thing to do. I signed them up for Little League. They got assigned to a team, and the coach was David Swenson. So <laughs> that's how we met. And so my kids played baseball. David and I got to be friends. When I decided I was going to go back to work, I just started talking to him about what's available in Connecticut, what should I think about? And he said, why don't you come in and, and work here? I said, I don't know if it's a fit. He didn't know whether it was a fit. As you probably know, it's very unusual for Yale to hire somebody laterally. And I didn't know anything about what they did, honestly. And that was probably one of the things David liked about me. I didn't come in with preconceived notions. So I started as a consultant. And after several months, they offered me a full-time job. I started actually in natural resources. I did a lot of discovery work in the world of mining to see if there was something interesting to do in mining. And I managed the oil and gas portfolio. Over time, started to take on more and more in venture capital and some private equity with Tim Sullivan. And that was great. That felt much more familiar to me. I often joke that I worked on the two parts of portfolio with the most entrepreneurial people in the world. If you think Silicon Valley entrepreneurs are entrepreneurial, go meet the people in Texas that are drilling for oil. And when you first were meeting managers, how did the lens that you had from, I guess, banking, but also sitting in a private equity shop inform what you thought? Yeah, interesting. I think, so the banking part informed the ability to look at the actual portfolio and understand sort of the quality of the underlying companies and why people were investing in them. The other piece, being inside a partnership, is a great education about how difficult partnerships are. And one of the things we care a lot about in investment management is the longevity of the team you're investing behind, the stability of that team, their ability to mentor other people, their ability to share economics over time. When you're in one of these firms, I think you viscerally learn how difficult that is. These are really tough balancing acts. Finding the right chemistry between these partners is really important and not always easy to find. So maybe that allowed me to ask the harder questions about, tell me about your culture, your organization, the economics, that had I not been in that position of private equity, I wouldn't have known to ask. And what did you find when you first got to Yale? There's a group of people that have been terrific at what they've done, but they haven't had that similar type of experience before going. So were there situations where you found, even within Yale's portfolio, that you wondered about, say, the partnership dynamic or the quality of the companies that the people were investing in? I wish I could say yes, but I can't even remember that far back. That was like 15 <laughs> years ago now. I'm sure I, my perspective was additive, but I mean, the Yale people are obviously so well-versed in what they're doing. I do think the perspective of having lived in Silicon Valley, having worked with these companies, having seen the distortions that can be created along the way, was helpful in sorting through stuff that comes over the transom or interpreting if a manager is in your, your conference room and you're saying, tell me about these five deals. And you know to ask, were you the lead? Were you the lead? Were you the lead? No, no, no. And you start to realize, okay, this manager has fallen from a, a place where they were setting the terms and the, they were going to be the first phone call from the entrepreneur to tagging along with other people. Do we really want to invest with this firm? So I'd say there were a few things, but it's hard to remember that far yeah. back. Yeah. And what were some of the key lessons that you learned from sitting at Yale that really resonated for you? The first thing is how high the bar is. It is super high and how high you have to keep it. I was just shocked at how many investment opportunities there are 
I mean, until you're in that world, and especially at a place like Yale, where everybody wants to at least have a meeting, I don't know that you can really comprehend the number of opportunities that you have to sort through. So that's pretty nutty. And so how did you manage your time when you were there, when so many people want to meet with you? Tim Sullivan used to say this thing, which has really stuck with me, and I repeat it often, which is, you don't have to do every good deal. Just every deal that you do has to be good. And so you have to be not afraid to miss something good. So you're really playing the odds here. You want to have a very high hit record, and it's okay if you let one go by. It's okay when you filter to say, okay, I'm going to have these first principles of this has outside ownership in the GP, forget it. Or there's been a lot of turnover in this firm. It's going to be too hard to underwrite. There's that kind of filtering that can go on up front where you can just eliminate a lot of things. Are there any other kind of big principles that stuck with you? Well, independence is obviously a huge one. The economics accruing to the investment professionals that are hard at work every day is a huge one. The the focus on returns for our managers rather than on asset gathering, having an appropriate size for the opportunity set. Those are those are really first principles. I would say something over time that maybe isn't quite as obvious is that everybody, I think, eventually gets to, and something I really underscored at Yale over and over again, is the quality of the people that you're investing behind. If you don't want to go to dinner with them, I often tell my group this now, if you don't want to go to dinner with them, let's not invest with them. Because... You're not really investing for the good times. You're investing for the really terrible times when you're going to have to be in the trenches together. And so how are these people going to treat you then? How honest are they going to be with you? How much of a frank conversation can you have? And if the chemistry is not right, then you're never going to be able to have those conversations. So it just makes sense to sort of move on. How do you balance that concept with the idea that we all have a tendency to like things that are familiar? So do you end up surrounding your manager roster with certain personality type as opposed to, oh, maybe there's a great hedge fund manager who's bombastic. And you might not want to have dinner with him, but you can verify he's actually a good person. He's just not your type of person. Yeah, that probably wouldn't go in our portfolio. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that creates any kind of behavioral bias? Probably, but it doesn't. Again, the world is very big. There's lots of opportunities. So it's I think it's okay, and I don't have any facts to prove this, but I think the bias is probably is probably in our favor on that one. Why is somebody bombastic? Why are they touting something? Why do they want to be in the headlines? I mean, that says something about their personality as opposed to, you know, I'm a rower. So what does that mean? Like, you are never in the spotlight. Nobody comes to your races. Why are you doing it? You know, and it's the hardest sport in the world. The, the ratio of working out time to actual racing time is the poorest that I can think of across any sport, except maybe swimming. But people are very serious. It's nose to the grindstone. They care a lot. It's bombastic is sort of the opposite of that. So it just doesn't work very well with us. Yeah. Uh, we're much more interested in people who are super serious about what they're doing can explain, I don't really have to like the person, but I have to respect them enough and I have to be able to have a conversation with them. And they have to be interesting enough and articulate enough to help me get inside their mind. How many years did you spend at Yale? Six. And how did you decide, or when did you decide that it was time to kind of step into a CIO role? Yeah, I would say I wasn't looking. I was perfectly happy there. The story of Wesleyan is one that goes back to 1929 for my family. The call didn't even come from a headhunter. came from my uncle, who attended in 1961 and had been on the board. He was emeritus at the time. But he called and said, look, we're going to open up this search. Would you have any interest? I really hope you would consider it. And 
So my great uncle attended in 29. My uncle was 61. My sister was 88. My brother was 82. I had cousins that were 88 and 90, and my niece just graduated in 17. So I've had almost 100 years of history with this school. I knew at the time it was super small, it was 500 million. There were certainly a lot of reasons not to do it, but there were a lot of reasons to do it too. Number one, I really cared. I'd grown up singing these Wesleyan fight songs. And so even though I didn't go there, I always loved the school. In fact, I probably would have gone there, but my brother was only 15 months older than me and he was already there. And at the time I was looking at colleges, there was no campus on earth that could hold the both of us. <laughs> and now we're best friends, of course. But so anyway, it was very appealing from a psychic reward standpoint. It needed help. It was clearly undermanaged for a long time. And and I believed in the mission of the school. There was a new president who I thought was really doing a great job. I wanted to work with him. So for all those reasons, it seemed like an appealing opportunity. When I looked at what was going on at Yale, I loved it. The people there are so smart. I always felt like the dumbest person in the room, which if you're the right type of person, that's a really appealing environment. I was, felt like I was constantly learning. But I did see a time where three or four years out in the future, if I were doing exactly what I was doing every day, maybe that the learning curve would run out. And so it seemed a little early, but on the other hand, I also thought an opportunity where I would have the same real psychic pull. I don't know what that would have been. So that's why I went. And that was now 10 years ago, I guess, or just yeah. about. What did you find when you showed up? Well, it's hard to know even where to start. I would just say it was very much a startup kind of opportunity. You name it, we had to work on it. There was one person there with some institutional memory. There were a lot of Excel spreadsheets with our historical performance, none of which I was certain didn't have fat finger errors in them. And there was a portfolio with 26 managers in it. And there was an investment policy statement that had been written, I think, in 1982 and was completely like we weren't in adherence to it. And there was a spending policy that had been written in like 1961 that we weren't in adherence to either. So there was a lot of work to do. So we ended up having to do all those things, figure out the back office system, put a new policy portfolio together. We had to review the entire portfolio, decide. I mean, everything sort of went into a red, yellow, green bucket and hire people. It was just, it was a lot of work, but very exciting. Well, let's turn and focus on kind of the investment side of it. So you had a model or a structure in your mind from working at Yale, and now you're going to a much smaller pool of capital. What did you take? What did you leave behind? So I think the core tenets of being equity oriented and diversified are sort of universal and you really want to adopt those. So that was clear. I mean, we have a very high hurdle as well. We think we have to make seven and a half or eight percent nominal over long periods of time. And you can't really do that unless you're equity oriented. So those sort of things seemed obvious. We didn't have some of the same flexibility in our capital structure that Yale does. And what I mean by that is we had about $200 million of debt outstanding at the university when I came on a $500 million endowment pool. So we knew we could not generate liquidity by going back out to the capital market. So we had to generate all our liquidity internally. That means, translated, that we could never be as illiquid as Yale. So that was something we did a lot of modeling around to try to figure out what was a liquidity risk we could really take. And where did you come out on that on the policy portfolio? So when I started, it was about 35% we set as a ceiling. Now it's up to 42%. But we've had to do that gradually over time. And at a billion, we've got more room to do that. 
So that was one of the things that was really different about the portfolio. The other thing that Yale does extremely well is find really talented people and put them in business. And I quickly realized, like, that's not going to be the model for us. We are not price negotiators. I spent a lot of time at Yale working on LPAs and negotiating terms. We were going to be a price taker. So it was sort of a take it or leave it decision when we found managers we liked rather than, I mean, and yes, we, we like to say we punch above our weight or people want to hear our opinion. But the reality is that the, the larger investors are setting the terms. So that was one big difference. And then over time, I think what we've had to think about is how early can we be with managers? You know, do we want to be a day one investor? Do we want to be a day two investor? You know, we have a different risk profile. We have a different set of resources that we're six people. So there's only so much we can do. And our capital, because we're so underfunded, we have 3,000 students at Wesleyan. And when I came, it was a $500 million endowment for 3,000 students. Now it's a billion one for 3,000 students. But our size, we're one of the largest universities in the NESCAC. And we've gotten bigger, but we're still undersized versus some of our peers. So, you know, capital is really precious. So preservation of capital is something we think about a lot. How did that translate into what your asset allocation looks like, say, today? We believe in the illiquid model still. It's awfully hard to see how you're going to get the kind of returns we need without taking some risk on private equity and venture capital. And we were lucky enough to have some nice venture capital relationships. Like That is one thing I wouldn't do if I hadn't come from Yale and brought venture capital relationships with me or come from Silicon Valley where I'd had the network. It would be really hard to build it otherwise. And I would be afraid of making a lot of mistakes if I didn't have that experience. But we did build a venture capital portfolio. So we have taken risk on the privates and venture. We have a midsize real estate portfolio. We have a smaller oil and gas portfolio, but it's really, that's not an area we've emphasized. We're sort of moving away from that. And then um, marketable and absolute return we have. But we have a much larger public equity portfolio than Yale does, and we probably always will. But I think one of the things you have to figure out over time is what are you good at as a team? And I think we've made great choices in private equity and venture. Those have both really worked for us. I think we've been really good in real estate, too. We've done a nice job on domestic equity. I feel like we've taken our punches in emerging markets and in oil and gas. And I think over time, we're more cautious there because we wonder, like, are we getting better or are we just bad at this? I think we have to figure it out over time. And are those punches, you're saying on a relative basis? Yeah, on a relative manager basis. Manager selection punches. Yeah. And why do you think there's two areas out of eight or whatever it is that you had sort of weaker results than in the others? Emerging is just hard, right? Because it's hard to find great managers in emerging markets. The return on time is so terrible. We've been going to China for years and years. We've been going to India there was a period of time, four years or five years, we went to Brazil a ton, and we ended up with no managers there. So it's just been a slog. You know, I think that today we're seeing the quality of the manager in China, for example, we're seeing some really interesting managers. But if you go back eight years ago, I think they were fewer and farther between. And we settled a couple times to get the exposure and to get some learning under our belt. And, you know, in retrospect, those didn't work out. I mean, it didn't obviously kill our returns. And maybe you have to take some punches to figure it out. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. 
Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist, netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So when you're looking at, say, underwriting a new manager to your portfolio, say in China or something else, how much comfort do you take in the company of the select crowd of people that you've worked with and that you know that are looking at a similar manager compared to just saying, you know what, you want to be in your shell rolling on your own? Yeah, it's really a balancing act, right? Because you don't want to be overly influenced by the thinking of other people. They could be right, but it could still be a poor fit for you for all sorts of reasons. But on the other hand, if you find somebody you like and no other great investors are investing alongside you, I think you have to ask yourself, like, am I that much smarter than all these people at Yale who have been doing this for 20 years or at Princeton or at Stanford? Like, why aren't they here side by side with me or Williams or, you know, Bowden? And then you really better go back to the drawing board and figure out, like, why you love this manager and nobody else has. And maybe you're right, but you better triple check your work in those situations. And what is that process? I mean, is that you're triple checking your work on your own or are you calling those people and saying, hey, like, am I missing something here? Yeah. I mean, I think we're willing to pick up the phone and call people and try to figure out, are we missing something here? Particularly if we know other people have looked and passed. But Those answers can really vary. It could be like, you're looking at a venture capitalist and you think it's great and you can't figure out why isn't so-and-so investing. You call them up and they're like, oh my God, I'm so over my skis in venture capital, I can't make another investment. So there are other reasons that people might not be side by side with you, but you do want to make sure you didn't miss like, oh yeah, we did due diligence on that guy and he's a really bad guy. When you're looking at, so let's say venture capital in particular, you start your portfolio with relationships that so you're pretty comfortable. You've got the right ones. Maybe you're accessing capacity. And then over time, you look in newer managers. What's that process like in trying to underwrite a smaller venture capital fund or something that isn't known by the community to be oversubscribed? Yeah, I think it's really hard. Again, here's a place where we've done some experimenting and tried to figure out how good can we be at identifying those emerging managers in venture? And one of the issues that you have there, there's two things that we've really wrestled with. One is there's a lot of them. If you look at my inbox, inboxes often go through these phases where you'll see, I remember there was a time when I was at, at Yale and I would get like 10 funds that were in agricultural businesses every day. I was like, I didn't even know there were this many funds doing this. But the theme du jour is definitely the small, 
under $100 million venture fund. And there's just so many of them. It's, they could be great, but we only are five people and we have to manage the entire portfolio. And so sifting through that to try to find the gem is really, really hard. I think the other thing that's very hard is because venture has such a long feedback loop that you're going to be on the third fund before you really even know And that gets back to like, how are you going to size if you do decide to do some emerging manager? How do you size it so that you're not, when you're three funds deep, you haven't committed 1% of the endowment to this manager who's unproven. So you really have to think about sizing if you're going to do it. So I'd say it's not impossible. We have taken a few bets there, but we're in a period of time where Venture has had this unbelievable tide rising all, that has made all boats rise. And what we think about a lot is when the tide goes out, which it will inevitably, who is doing this for the right reasons and who is just who's going to be left standing and who's going to say this is too hard? Because it is really hard. I mean, it's hard when times are good. It's really hard when times are bad. And maybe this is one of the things that I learned in private equity because I joined my firm was focused on Internet and consumer, mostly consumer, but we, I joined to look at where internet meets consumer. And I joined them in September of 99. So every investment we made went through a very difficult time in the next three years while I was there. And so I saw a lot of pain. So I know how bad it can be at the bottom of the market. So you're not investing with people for like, oh, I just want exposure and everything's working right now. You really have to think about what is going to happen when the tide goes out. How big a problem is this portfolio? How willing are they going to be to work through it? How high quality is this portfolio that you can actually survive a downturn? All that stuff really matters. How do you tease that out in your meetings with managers? We ask, why are you doing this? And we ask, when we pick up the phone and do due diligence calls, you ask, why do you think this person is doing it? They made a ton of money at their startup. And I think part of it is just It's less about trying to figure out why are people doing it, but once in a while you come across the person who, for some reason in the meeting, you just know they're super hungry and they're not doing it for the money. This is a passion. They love working with entrepreneurs. They love innovation. If you have enough dialogue in the meetings that you have, that comes out. How did you build out your team? With great difficulty. (laughs) (laughs) How did you think about structuring it? Well, when I first started, I felt like, okay, what am I bringing to the table? I have private equity experience, public market experience from my banking days, natural resources experience. Where am I really short? Absolute return, hedge funds, which I'd never spent any time with, real estate. So I was like, okay, as we hire, let's try to hire people that bring some knowledge there. And one of the first guys I hired, who's now at Edge Hill Partners, had come from a consulting firm, and those were the two areas that he focused on. So I felt really lucky. He was with us for three years before moving on, and he taught me a lot. And then the second thing is you just spend time in those areas. So I really tried to hire originally, you know, in this small shop like us, I couldn't do what Yale does so well, which is hire the undergrad, keep him around for five years. Like, I needed people now. So I had really no choice but to hire people with experience. I looked for those complementary skills. I also looked for somebody in emerging markets because I had no had someone with China connections. So we hired somebody into that position. And then over time, we've hired um, more junior people and they have 
kind of come up through the ranks. But it's hard because we're on campus in Middletown. So our analyst program, we don't expect people to stay around forever. We think it's kind of a three-year program and then people go off to business school or they'll move to New York or something. As you think of, you know, a five or 10-year horizon for you in the office and on, how do you think about the roles that those people play? Yeah, we're all generalists right now, even though people bring expertise in certain things. Anybody in the office, if you said, tell me about this real estate manager, would be able to articulate the strategy of any manager in our portfolio. You know, we've been trying hard to keep the manager count down. I think we're somewhere around 60 managers across the entire endowment, and there are five of us. So it's reasonable. But we go through every manager together. And so when we have to re-underwrite something, there's a big discussion. Having said that, I've seen both the specialist model where people are in charge of an asset class and the generalist model now. And I think, you know, they both have pros and cons. They both have things that you lose along the way and things that you gain. I think what's great about the generalist model is everybody thinks about the comparative risk return of any investment. And that's super helpful. So somebody looking at real estate will be able to say, this real estate manager is really interesting, but it's more like venture because we're really, we're not going to get any payout on the way. We're really depending on appreciation of the asset at the end versus this one, this looks more like fixed income. So you know, we can really think about risk and return at the manager level. So that's been helpful. Over time, who knows? I mean, I can see why people move to the specialist model. If you have a lot of money to put to work and you want to invest with entrepreneurial firms, you need more of them. And so you really need to know what's going on, who's spinning out all the time. You need to be there day one. The specialist model works better that way. How have you thought of taking advantage of the size of the capital base? Great paradox of the small endowment is that we have the capital base to do really interesting things, but we don't have the people. In terms of resources on your team? Yeah. Yeah. You have six people. You have a great capital base. We're a $20 million investment. We've done a couple things that are a little bit off the beaten track that have worked out. But the other thing I think about with doing those really niche things is, is this going to compound our knowledge over time? Or is this a one-off where we're going to spend a lot of time underwriting this one little orphan thing? And it won't have any bearing on the rest of the portfolio. Because I think when you're also small, you have to really think about that. Like, how are we going to compound knowledge in the people and in our investment experience? How do you try to crystallize that? There's a lot of stuff that we just said no at the beginning because we just have limited resources. So right off the bat, we said, look, we're not going to do any mining. We're not going to do any real estate outside of the U.S. We're not going to go to these parts of the world. It doesn't matter if that's in the index. We're just not doing it. But then when we come across something like reinsurance or litigation funds, sort of like, is the return from this going to be so differentiated that we're willing to go and divert our resources to go learn about litigation funds? And how is that going to help us in the rest of our portfolio where nobody's doing this? So it's appealing because it's different and it's supposedly, you know, beta zero. But on the other hand... I don't know that it's really going to help build our knowledge base in the endowment. And so on the margin, do you shy away from this? We shy away from this. Yeah. And how do you think about that as that means it leads you to more kind of down the middle strategies? Yeah, it does for sure. But on the other hand, we're less prone to making mistakes, which are super costly. You know, it's the old, that's the best way to make money. Don't lose money. 
I think the more, if we look at 700 venture firms, we're pretty sure when they might won't all work out, but we're pretty sure we know who like the top 20 are that we want to be with. I don't know that we can do that with litigation firms. I don't really know. We're always afraid of the risks that we can't perceive. So the more experience that you have in an area, the better from that standpoint. Although the reason we probably have experience in it is because we're doing it a lot and everybody else is doing a lot and the returns may be driven down. But I'd rather have a high confidence 12% return than a really not high confidence 16% return or 17% return. Where have you either learned something or adopted a behavior that's kind of different from what you knew when you started at Wesleyan? Well, I'd say one of the things I really learned from David is like the quality of the people. I don't know. He seemed to have a sixth sense for like, are these people you want to work with or not? I used to pretend I was wearing a wristband once in a while. What would David do? You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. and somehow I, I can't even explain exactly what it is, but sometimes you're sitting in a meeting and you're like, would David ever invest with this person? And you're like, no. Okay. That probably says I should And what's really an example of that type of insight? People aren't clear about what they're doing. They can't really articulate it for you. If it's a complex area, they can't put it in terms that you understand. Too much jargon. Math, can't do math in their heads. Things like that. And how about things where you've changed your beliefs over the last couple of years? One of the things we've been thinking about really hard is the oil and gas world. And this is... It's an area that I came from, so obviously, I, I mean, I've lived in that world for six years at Yale, and there are some great people there, and we still depend on fossil fuels. And yet, if you look at the industry as a whole, it's pretty structurally ugly, right? Because it's a commodity business, there's all sorts of ways to destroy capital, capital allocation decisions are hugely important. There's so much volatility around the commodity price. You have all this factor risk in the commodity price. So even your best operators, can they really overcome a 60% commodity price fall? It's just really difficult. And I think we've had managers that have done really well, but we've also had managers that have done very poorly. I think a lot of people have learned this lesson through the 2014 commodity price plummets that leverage is pretty ugly when you have that much volatility in your operating business. So for all those reasons, but probably more importantly, if you look out, I'm not saying five years or even 10 years, but if you look out 30 years, we wonder a lot about tail risk out there of re-rating these assets, right? Because the longer we go without doing anything about climate change, the worst potential shift we could have right away. And if that happens these reserves could lose a lot of value. So when you think about some of these managers, if you're investing in assets for 15 years, right, 15-year fund, and you're holding the underlying asset, at the end of 15 years, they're replacing reserves along the way. But then you get to the end of 15 years, somebody's going to buy that asset from them based on the next 15 years. So as you get closer to the end of the fund, that terminal value matters, and yet the terminal value is, is way out in the future. So it feels like that uncertainty, if you will. I mean, we try to invest for 10 or 15 years, but we like the cone of uncertainty to be sort of narrow. And it feels like the cone of uncertainty 15 years out in this particular asset class has widened. So what do you do with that? Well, I think one thing we've done is gotten rid of the target for oil and gas, which doesn't mean we can't do it. We can. And we have some managers we really like that we think hit the hurdle. 
but they have to compete against the rest of the portfolio and they have to go into the private asset class. And so you are really making the trade-off of, do I want to be in this middle market buyout fund, which has its own risks versus an oil and gas fund that has these particular things. And that forces you to look harder at like, what is the expected rate of return? What is the volatility around that expected rate of return out in the future? So it doesn't mean we won't do it, but we don't want to be the frog in the boiling water and not know we're getting burned because we have this target. We think we have to have a frog in, that sits in this pot. Yeah. You mentioned middle market buyouts and you mentioned earlier that in a lot of situations, you're a price taker. Yeah. How do you think about evaluating a private equity fund today? It could be mid-market or a large fund, knowing that the pricing environment is higher, knowing the fees are high. It's really hard. I guess two things. One is we do think of it relative to public equities. So if somebody's paying 11 times for an asset, if you look at the public markets, somebody may be paying 18 times for that asset. So still on a relative basis, maybe you have a spread there. I think if you look at the numbers, the spread's really, really narrowed as a whole. So you really have to look at the individual asset And then I think you've got to do a ton of work on the underwriting. Like, what are you really going to do with this asset? And, you know, we still do find managers, amazingly, who have a different, they bring something to the table. They have a different angle. They see something in an asset that they can do, or they've seen two other assets along the way that they think can merge here, and it can really change the properties of those businesses. And so I still think that the governance model of private equity is superior because the owner of these assets can do those things that maybe they couldn't do in the public market. So you can merge those three companies together. You can cut people. You can end a business that doesn't make sense. You can sell a business that maybe people think you shouldn't be selling. You can do all the things that are economically the right thing with a five to 10 year horizon, but would cause your quarterly earnings to go down. I mean, oftentimes in these buyout funds, what we see is that the EBITDA is down for the first two or three years because they're really investing in these companies. That doesn't work very well in the public markets, right? As you think of your portfolio as a whole, and now that it's settled in after 10 years, there's a lot of, people are always kind of looking for the next thing, whether it's analyzing based on risk factors these days or a new asset class. How have you thought about balancing, kind of going deeper into what you have with broader into what the next thing is? Yeah, I think it's really easy to get mesmerized by the next shiny object. And I think we try our best to resist that. One of the ways we do that is we don't go to any conferences. Another way we do that is we don't meet with any firms that are trying to sell us, you know, factor risk or smart beta or any of those things. And maybe those things are great, but we still ultimately believe this is about fundamentals and fundamental investing. And so understanding a company, understanding the management team, understanding the capital allocation decisions, understanding the industry structure, the competitive factors, all that stuff matters a ton. I don't know how to get conviction in something that's, that's machine-based. <laughs> uh, so we've really resisted the shiny object thing. And how about just the incremental edge of innovation within what you're doing? I'd say there's things like everybody talks about quant funds. I don't even know what that means. But what we'll do with something like that is say, okay, the next year, well, let's do this project. And let's go meet with some of these funds. Let's go meet with people who run these funds. Let's go meet with people who invest with these funds. Let's try to understand, is there really 
A, is there something different here that is compelling? And B, if it's not compelling to us, how will it affect what's already in our portfolio? So does it have ramifications for fundamental investing that we should understand? So we'll put something like that on the project list and maybe something will come out of it. But it's not something we go and chase. Have you done that with Quant or is that? No, that's on, on the, that's that's on on the, the list. list. Okay. Yeah. There's been so much AI this and machine learning that and Quant this. How do you think about your own competitive advantage or edge relative to people that are in some sense competing against you? Yeah, it's funny. We had an offsite last year and we talked about this very question. What is our edge? And everybody had a slightly different answer. It was really interesting. First thing is we have, as you know, endowments and foundations are super special because we have the longest time horizon of any investor. So we can be super patient. So that's just an edge for our class of investor. I think for us in particular, our people, I think we try to cultivate a lot of intellectual curiosity in the office. We try to, when we meet with managers, and we're really trying to hard to have a dialogue. We like to be prepared. We kind of feel like if we leave a meeting, they didn't think, oh, gosh, I, she really made me think about that harder. Or, oh, that's a new perspective. Or, I, oh, I really learned something about how somebody else is doing stuff. If we don't add something in the meeting, we kind of feel like we failed. So I think our competitive edge is maybe everybody does this, but I really do think we're very intellectually engaged on the subjects our managers care about. And then Wesleyan. I mean, I think Wesleyan's an amazing school. And part of my job is to sell managers on why you want to help Wesleyan. And it's an incredible place. It's been around since 1831. We have amazing alums that come out of it. We have interns in our office every summer. I see these people. They're incredible. You mentioned the alums. How does your board governance structure work? Well, that was one of the things I had to change when I came in because the the governance used to be the portfolio subcommittee reported to the finance committee, which reported to the board. So clearly legacy structure left over from the time that the treasurer was probably picking out bonds and stocks for the portfolio. So we disbanded that and we started an investment committee. And it's, I think it's eight people now and we meet four times a year and they are, we have one parent on the committee. It's mostly trustees, but we do have places for advisory members. Those happen to be mostly alums over the time too, but it's a good group. How do they influence your thinking? They have influenced my thinking on a couple things. I mean, we bring all of our manager approvals to them and we don't want them to get obviously bogged down in manager approvals. But sometimes they have been very good at saying, wow, this looks risky. Are you sure this is the sizing you want? And we've downsized a couple things because of their the good dialogue we've had with them. And those have turned out to be the right decisions. So on the asset allocation, they're really the ones that are setting the risk parameters for the endowment. And so I think there's really a lot of healthy discussion around equity exposure. We've had a lot of discussions around credit because credit is a growing part of the investment toolkit. And there's lots of flavors out there. And we've done a couple things there that have worked out. So it's a trade-off, right? You're trading off a long-term equity return for a, what looks like an appealing return of capital along the way, but gets you very low multiples. All right, Anne, let's turn to some closing questions. Okay. <laughs> What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Well, I'm a big reader. I try to read 50 books a year. Don't ask me why I came up with that number, but I did. That's a lot. It is a lot. So I've only read like 24 this year. So I'm way behind. 
last year I managed to exceed the 50 by a good number. So. And when do you read to fit that in? I don't watch TV. So that frees up a lot of time. I read on plane flights. So I never watch movies on plane flights, very rarely. So that provides a lot of time if you saw my travel schedule. So I love to read. I do the New York Times crossword puzzle every day. And I am a fanatic exerciser. I ride my bicycles, all six of them frequently. Do you still row? (laughs) Almost never. Just too much time involved in trying to get to a boathouse, get the boat on the water. What's your biggest pet peeve? I don't have an answer for that one. (laughs) How about in the investment world? Anything that... Yeah, you know what really bothers me in the investment world is when people talk about gross returns versus net returns. That's a pet peeve. We can't spend gross returns. All right, of all that reading you do, what reading do you almost never miss? You know, there's another one that I don't have a periodical or anything I read on a regular basis. It's pretty eclectic. I mean, I try to hit pitch book in the morning because venture is such a dynamic area. Sometimes I'll learn that something left our portfolio or entered our portfolio first through that. And I read the the New York Times blurb that comes across my email. But other than that, I, I really don't have anything I read on a regular basis. It's much more books than it is news. I'm I'm not a big believer that I really need to read the news every day. It's kind of distorting. It distorts reality too much. Interesting. Has that ever tripped you up by kind of not knowing something you felt like you should have known for some reason? Not really. Only when somebody asks about some esoteric thing that I really don't care about. (laughs) I feel like, oh, all the smart people are talking about, like this last week, this whole repo mess. We don't have any of that in our portfolio. It got solved really quick. I didn't spend a lot of time reading about that. I don't care. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? So my father passed away when I was in college. So that's early when you're 18 and you lose your dad. You can hardly remember what he taught you before that. But my mother was a huge role model. My mother was an amazing person. She graduated from Smith in 1954, magna cum laude in math, and went to work for IBM, if you can believe it. Once she married my dad and got pregnant, that was it, because you weren't allowed to work after that. So she was a stay-at-home mom, but always very ambitious. And she was super resilient. So when I was in high school... She ran for the Congress of the United States for the Democratic Farm and Labor Party in Minnesota. So I remember traveling around on farms with her and talking to these farmers. And she was just such a ardent believer in social justice and fairness and helping the little person. I was just she was just amazing. And she lost in the caucus or in the primary to somebody and But she was just so resilient. Like, she just kept fighting her whole life for the rights of people that were forgotten. Or So she's just a real inspiration to me. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm serious. I looked at this one, and I was just like, I don't know. Either I'm one of those people, I'm such a forward thinker and not a backward thinker that I can't even remember. Like, I'm sure I made tons of mistakes, but they all seem. How about a favorite motto or mantra that you tell yourself? Well, my mother used to say, Tomorrow is another day. When you have a really bad day, it'll all look better in the morning. And that is for sure and something we should all remember. Sometimes we get really worried, and just going to bed and sleeping on it will make you feel a lot better. Yeah, my mother used to have a. A lot of sayings, you know, the two wrongs don't make a right. (laughs) It'll all look better in the morning. 
Great. And thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. We'll be right back.